Thank you for joining the Southeast PTTC podcast series. Every episode covers an important topic pertaining to the work of substance misuse prevention professionals. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon, and be sure to visit us online at pttcnetwork.org backslash southeast. Welcome to the benefits of engaging youth in communities. In this podcast episode, we are joined by Dr. Parissa Ballard. Dr. Ballard is an assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at Wake Forest School of Medicine. This episode discusses the benefits of engaging youth at the community level and the role it can play in substance misuse prevention. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Youth engagement, of course, is a mainstay of prevention efforts these days. So I think we know as a field, in the field of prevention, that engaging youth can be a a powerful tool in community work on prevention. That said, I think what we hear less about is how this kind of engagement can actually benefit the youth, him or herself. And when we do hear about it, it's usually not grounded in any kind of uh, science. So we're really excited today to present this webinar uh, to discuss the scientific basis of uh, youth engagement uh, and the benefits for youth as well as the benefits to communities from someone who actually studies youth development. Dr. Parissa Ballard, she's our speaker today. Dr. Ballard earned her bachelor's degree and her master's degree from Wake Forest. She went to Stanford University to uh, earn her PhD in developmental and psychological science and then uh, uh, had a, uh, a fellowship. She was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Psycholo- uh, health and society scholar at the University of California, both uh, Berkeley and San Francisco, a very uh, prestigious and competitive uh, uh, fellowship. Uh, she's now an assistant professor at Wake Forest. She came back home uh, in the Department of Family and Community Medicine. Uh, Dr. Ballard's expertise is in child and adolescent development and youth civic engagement. And her research focuses on the, the connections between civic engagement and health and wellness among adolescents and young adults. So we're absolutely delighted to have her here today. Uh, so Parissa, uh, tell us what developmental science uh, can tell us about the benefits of engaging youth in prevention. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Wolfson, for the um, warm introduction. And thank you, Kristen, and thank you to the PTTC for inviting me um, to talk today about the developmental insights about youth engagement and its role with substance misuse prevention for youth. Um, So I'm hoping by the end of the webinar that you'll have a sense of the benefits of engaging youth in communities. And specifically, I want to focus on um, the role that engagement can play in preventing substance misuse, both at the level of the individual, so for youth themselves, um, and also for strengthening uh, prevention policy and programming for organizations. Um, I also hope you'll learn a little something about youth development that you can directly use in your work that you're likely already doing with young people in prevention. And um, to that end, I'll share some specific tips throughout the presentation, but especially at the end, um, about working with youth. Um, So to start with, what do I, you know, who do I mean by youth? Who are young people? Um, I'm a developmental psychologist, and so we really don't like hard and fast age boundaries around developmental stages. So I am talking today about adolescents and young adults. Um, There's a psychologist who who talks about adolescents as chronological hostages of a time warp between biological age and social age. And I really love that because it kind of gets at the murkiness of defining developmental stages as well as the murkiness of adolescence as a kind of a time of confusion and a lot of changes. 
Um, we also hear uh, developmental psychologists talk about adolescence as beginning in biology and ending in society. And what we mean by that is adolescence really begins with the, the brain and physiological changes of puberty and sort of ends at an undefined time when young people take on social roles. You know, the legal age of, of becoming an adult is 18, but some people don't um, start a family, settle down with a job, or complete education until way later. Um, so today I'm talking about youth as adolescents and young adults roughly between the ages of 11 and 25, if you like a more defined definition of youth. So for a long time, developmental psychologists really thought about adolescence as a time of storm and stress. But this time period kind of had a bad rap. It's a time of raging hormones and social and environmental changes, um, and just had a bad rap at a time where young people kind of couldn't um, inhibit themselves and had impulse control problems. But more recently, developmental psychologists have really changed our metaphor for thinking about adolescence as more of a window of opportunity. So sure, we still know that a lot of intense changes are happening at multiple levels for adolescents, but now we think this actually makes adolescence a really unique period for both positive and negative changes. So in other words, adolescence is now being thought of as a sensitive period of both vulnerability and opportunity. Um, Dr. Mark Fishman gave a PTTC webinar a couple weeks ago. He might have had the chance to attend. Um, and he talked about addiction as a developmental disorder of pediatric onset. And I really liked how he phrased that. And I want to agree and really elevate the message that adolescents are indeed vulnerable for many reasons, like their impulsivity and sensation seeking, as well as um, in inhibitory control that develops later in life. But today I want to build on that idea too by adding that adolescence is also a time of developmental opportunity. So the developmental psychologist Ron Dahl calls adolescence a natural tinderbox for igniting passions. And today I want to consider how meaningfully engaging youth in their communities can ignite passions and set youth on a positive path, building protective factors and mitigating risk factors for substance misuse. And so research in developmental psychology really tells us that when adolescents have meaningful opportunities for engagement in their community, um, that they're better able to develop a sense of purpose, um, form positive identities, and feel some sense of efficacy. Um, they're also more able to stay engaged in school and develop positive or pro-social relationships with adults. And these are all predictors of avoiding early substance use and protective factors against substance misuse. So, <clears throat> this framework of risk and protective factors is likely very familiar to you on the webinar who work in prevention. Um, but just to review, risk factors are considered to be the characteristics of individuals or conditions of the family, school, or peer groups and communities that increase the likelihood that young people will misuse substances. And on the flip side, protective factors are seen as the characteristics across individuals, schools, families, um, and communities that decrease the likelihood that young people will misuse substances. And so here's just one example of a table um, where you can see some risk and protective factors um, across the domains of community, family, school, and peer groups. And one thing to point out, if you look at the risk factors, one risk factor um, for social and health problems is low community attachment. And if you look at the protective factor side and community, one of the protective factors proposed is opportunities for pro-social involvement in the community. And so I want to, to point that out, but that is kind of a, a different way of talking about the same thing I'm talking about, which is that um, community attachment and meaningful engagement with your community really um, in and of itself, that's a protective factor. 
But I also want to argue a step further that when we can really engage young people in meaningful ways, that that builds a whole host of other protective factors like positive social skills, a sense of self-efficacy and purpose um, that are known to predict um, against substance misuse. So what do I mean by youth engagement? So I'm talking about us um, adults, especially who work in prevention and who just have young people in our lives ensuring that these young people, the adolescents and young adults, really have meaningful roles and a voice in the communities where they live, learn, and work. And there are a lot of examples of youth engagement. Again, this is a pretty broad term. So my research focuses on one particular type of engagement that I call civic engagement. And so that's thinking about how young people are involved in political activities in their communities, or things like activism, um, involvement in volunteering, as well as just issues and causes that they really care about. And so I will talk a little bit about more about my research on civic engagement as it relates to health. Um, but you can also think about leadership positions in school or work. So we know from the literature that disconnected youth are more at risk for substance use. Um, but if you connect youth to pro-social institutions like school and work, and even further, give them a leadership role where they do really feel like what they're doing matters and, and they have a sense of meaning and purpose about it, um, that that is a meaningful type of youth engagement. And then I'm also talking about engaging youth specifically in substance misuse prevention. So that is engaging youth in the work of actually developing prevention programs, policy, and implementing programs. As Dr. Wolfson said, this is something I think many people on this webinar are very familiar with as an important strategy in substance misuse prevention specifically. So why is youth engagement so powerful? You may be wondering by now, why really focus on youth engagement as a strategy in substance misuse prevention? Um, and I think the reason for me is that, it, that it's so important is that youth engagement really works at multiple levels. So the first level really is at that organization level. So we know that when we engage youth meaningfully in this work of um, designing prevention policies and programs, that it can improve the relevance and uptake and reach of the prevention programming. Um, and that that can um, serve, as a, serve as a way to prevent substance misuse. Um, and I hope many of you on this webinar have had some experiences that we could talk about during the question and answer, um, maybe successes and challenges of engaging youth in your own work um, and how that may have made your prevention efforts um, more relevant. Um, but also today we'll focus on this individual level, and that is thinking about how engaging youth in the, in the community can build these protective factors, these psychological and social um, assets um, that come from having really meaningful um, social roles in the community and how those can serve as um, a pathway to prevent substance misuse. So I'm going to focus on this individual level. So, and we know from research that um, youth engagement in their communities is associated with or correlated with um, less substance misuse. Um, so I want to think about, um, ask you to think about a particular young person in your life. So that may be your own child or someone in your family or a student or um, a young person at the organization where you work and just really think about, do they have a chance in their life to actively participate in community activities that are meaningful to them and that they have chosen? And if they do, like think about volunteering, for example, or collaborating on community involvement projects. And if you can think of that person in your life, how do they talk about those volunteering or community activities? Um, and Young people themselves don't typically talk in terms of protective factors and risk factors. So you're unlikely to hear a young person say, when I volunteer, it inc increases my sense of self-efficacy and self-worth. Um, but what you are likely to hear is young people say, when I volunteer, um, I feel like I matter. Or 
um, when I'm involved in this community project, I feel like I'm making a difference. That's the kind of language that young people usually use, but that's actually the language of protective factors, right? The feeling that you matter and that you're making a difference. Those um, translated into research speak are efficacy, sense of purpose, um, and meaningfulness, and that those are protective against substance misuse. We have evidence of that. Another area of evidence is in this um, domain of alternative programs. I think people on, the, on this webinar are likely familiar with alternative programs, which are programs that are set up so that young people have activities to do that don't include substances. Um, and there's evidence that these can be effective in preventing substance misuse. And this especially seems to be true when young people themselves are involved in the planning and implementing of the alternative activities um, and when alternative activities are one part of a kind of um, multi-component strategy for prevention. And then finally, again, in my own research, I examine the associations between civic engagement and health behaviors, which include um, substance use behaviors. I want to just go into a little bit of detail about one study um, that I did where I asked the question, does civic engagement during late adolescence and early adulthood predict health in later adulthood? And luckily, there's a large study called Ad Health. that's um, a nationally representative um, data set that follows young people across time. Um, and so what we were able to do is look at the links between volunteering and voting when young people were around age 18, and then look where they were in terms of health measured by depression and risky health behaviors 10 years later. And risky health behaviors included um, using substances like alcohol and tobacco. And we were able to use a really um, fancy statistical approach in this study where what we did was match people who are really similar on 37 characteristics, including history of substance use and um, social class and other factors that we know predict both depression and risky health behaviors. So after we match people with other people who are similar to them on all those background characteristics, then we looked at whether volunteering and voting were related with these health outcomes 10 years later, and we found that both volunteering and voting negatively predicted depression and negatively predicted participation in risky health behaviors, again, including substance use. And so I think what this suggests to me is that civic engagement has a potentially powerful, but I think um, currently underutilized um, positive benefit for putting young people on positive health trajectories. But we weren't able to answer in that study why that is. Um, but what we think, based on, on the research in, in developmental psychology and based on the research in substance misuse prevention, we think that the civic engagement is helping build these protective factors. Again, these are things like um, meaningful connections with other people, um, a sense of self-efficacy, um, mattering to others, and that developing a sense of purpose and meaning, um, developing hope and a sense of orientation toward the future, um, especially if you think about volunteering, we have found in my own research, as well as um, a lot of other research, that volunteering really can provide a meaningful opportunity um, for young people to develop some of these protective factors. At the same time, I think that especially volunteering can build these social environmental assets like positive pro-social relationships with other adults. So um, volunteering especially, um, and to some extent like political engagement as well, that really can connect you with a network of mentors and, and pro-social peers um, that can build those positive networks. And that might be um, one of the, uh, another pathway, um, protective pathway towards um, preventing substance use. So I just reviewed the main ideas and some evidence for this individual level 
Um, so the main the main argument being that evidence suggests that meaningful engagement can build up these protective factors for individuals um, by giving young people meaningful social role. And now I want to briefly turn to the organization level. And um, this will be, I think, more review given, as Dr. Wilson said, that I think many of you all um, work with youth and engage youth in your own prevention work. Um, and I want to make the point that um, youth engagement, I think of it as an approach that can work within existing prevention approaches and strategies. Um, so I think a lot of you are likely familiar with the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, or CSAP, six prevention strategies, and they're listed there. Um, and youth engagement really can be used alongside or, or as part of um, all of these strategies. So for an example, um, community-based processes is maybe the most obvious example. So community-based processes in prevention are the idea that you're working kind of really in tandem with community partners um, to develop community-based initiatives for prevention. And so, of course, youth are one constituent in communities. So youth can be engaged in community-based processes. Um, but as many of you may have learned in your work with youth already, working with youth in community-based um, prevention work also does require uh, a different set of considerations um, when youth are your community-based partners. And I'll, I'll get to more of that in the next few slides. Um, as just one other example, um, at the last webinar, if you were able to attend the webinar, I think it was last week, Dr. Jennifer Ross talked about communication campaigns. And that is an environmental strategy. Um, and she was talking about the planning cycle for communication campaigns. And really, youth can be engaged in so many um, parts of that planning cycle. So um, if the communication campaign is developing materials targeting youth, then of course, youth will be um, incredibly insightful partners about actually developing the content of the communication campaign. Um, and then at the stage of piloting, piloting that message with youth would be really important. Um, and then targeting, like what social media platforms are the best to reach youth. Um, that's a place where you can really meaningfully engage youth, youth to get, um, I think, really positive returns on your prevention strategy, on your communication campaign. So the benefits to organizations of engaging youth in prevention work, um, there, there are many. So as mentioned, increasing the relevance of the prevention program policy or program um, is a major benefit. Also increasing the reach and uptake. So how to reach youth, where are youth, and what's effective at communicating with youth is something that youth can um, very effectively weigh in on. And I would also add that um, engaging youth shouldn't be thought of necessarily as a one-time thing. Not, it's not something you kind of do one time in the process as a consultation and then like check the box that it's done, but rather if you can really, um, in an ongoing way, continue to engage with youth, then they can add insights and they can help assess how the prevention um, initiative is going and offer really continued improvement as youth culture changes. So of course, all culture changes, um, but if you think about how fast moving youth um, culture can be, um, an engagement uh, prevention strategy that was developed in the 80s or 90s, even if it was really meaningfully developed um, alongside youth, is probably um, you know, may or may not be as effective today. Um, and one obvious example is, you, is if you think about social media and just the changes in how youth engage with social media. Um, so really, youth engagement, I think of it as a very ongoing process ra rather than a one-off um, part of the process of prevention work, either at the beginning, middle, or end. Um, and maybe you're thinking all of this sounds really great, but if you've had experience with it, it's very hard to do in a meaningful way. Um, so 
it's important to give a lot of consideration to the conditions um, for success if you're incorporating youth into your prevention work as an organization. And just a couple of the many things to think about are organizational capacity and readiness. Um, so one thing I, I think a lot about is what training have the adults had? So the, the existing prevention organization likely is comprised of adults. So what, what are the adults, who's actually going to be um, the adult who, who engage with youth and oversee kind of that component of prevention? Um, and do they have the time and commitment needed to really engage youth in a meaningful way? And it does take quite a bit of time and commitment because youth come at um, prevention from a very different starting point than, for example, adults do. Um, and one thing that is so important is to avoid tokenism. And that's the idea that um, sometimes youth are maybe consulted or conferred with about let's say a prevention initiative and then maybe their face is on um, a flyer um, and young people are quick to understand or feel if their you know feedback is only surface level and not being taken seriously so it's, but it's really a challenge to avoid youth as tokens and, and rather to, to set up a system where youth are a meaningful part of um, of the prevention um, planning process and stay tuned for some um, more specific tips toward the end of this presentation. Um, so I want to spend my remaining 10-15 um, minutes or so building out this table that I hope would be a helpful resource. So I will talk about the benefits to youth of youth engagement that's in that first column. So what is the developmental opportunity for youth um, when you're engaging them um, in community work? And then also talk about at the same time, what are the programmatic opportunities? So how can your programs, your prevention organization specifically benefit from youth engagement? And then in that last column, also consider the challenges of youth engagement. But I wanna take a very developmental focus here. Um, and so think about um, the opportunities and challenges by age group. And so you'll see in the rows I've um, divided up age group in kind of a non-standard way. And there's a reason for that. So this. Um, table is adapted from a, a paper that is that has been published um, and we had a, a specific reason for thinking about youth in the way we do um, and by the way I will share my email address on the last slide and I'm happy to share this if this feels like a useful resource because I think it's behind a paywall um, so I'm happy to share it if you email me okay so starting with what we're calling very young adolescents so thinking about 10 to 14 year olds so what's going on with them developmentally well, we think in the developmental literature, we talk about this is a time for um, motivation being really um, increased motivation for what we're calling what we call heartfelt goals. Or young people really are starting to understand that the world is a bigger place than just their family and peer group, and really starting to to find some things that really are important to them, and they're very motivated by that by these goals that that kind of come from them from the heart. Um, at the same time, at this age, young people have a very um, strong desire for acceptance. Um, and autonomy. So really they're searching for some um, ways to get involved that feel like that, that they're independent. Um, they're also very sensitive to feelings of rejections and disrespect and there's some good um, research in neuroscience that shows that, that, that um, the brains of young adolescents are actually especially tuned to social and emotional stimulation. Um, and so it's really important um, to think about how, how their sensitivities are developing at this, at this time. So what this means for youth engagement is youth engagement could be an especially important opportunity for very young adolescents if it provides a chance for autonomy. 
So if it really provides that chance for independence, then it'll be especially um, beneficial to young adolescents developmentally. In terms of programmatic benefits, so thinking specifically about very young adolescents between this age group, if your prevention organization um, is looking for really diverse insights, um, young people at this age have really different exposures to substance misuse issues. So, so some are quite naive or maybe haven't dealt with um, substance use in their peer group or family, whereas others um, uh, that has been a, a part of their peer, a part of their social experience already. So from a prevention organization standpoint, if you're trying to gather um, information about um, like how to reach young people with very different starting points for very different types of experience with substance misuse, this is a really good age group to gather their insights on how best to do that. Um, we also know from developmental science that there's a real mismatch at this age in particular between um, school and adolescents' needs for autonomy and independence. So this age group tends to be young people transitioning into and out of middle school. And that's a time where school's pretty top-down. Um, young adolescents have, tend to not have a lot of opportunities to choose their own classes. Family structure tends to be still really regulated. And adolescents at this age are really looking for opportunities um, to, to make some of their own choices and exert independence. So from a programmatic standpoint, if your prevention organization you work with can provide that, that would be a really powerful um, potential opportunity um, and benefit of your program for recruiting young people at this age. Another real interesting programmatic opportunity is that young people in this age group are pretty effective at get, garnering attention to make policy change. So thinking about you know, a really passionate 12 or 13 year old um, either making public speeches or, you know, being the face of a campaign, that's really powerful um, compared to maybe um, even older adolescents or adults speaking um, to the same kind of messages. Um, now here I want to um, be really careful and say to be cautious about um, avoiding tokenism and also really preparing young people if young people um, are going to be speaking publicly about issues or advocating for a certain um, prevention policy, it's really important to um, prepare them very well for um, what that means to, for the public speaking element and for like being vulnerable to potential public backlash when you, you know, kind of share opinions uh, in a public way. So some challenges here. So thinking about your prevention organizations, um, the diversity in the developmental trajectories at this age really requires some pretty skilled adult facilitators to work with this age group. And so what I mean by that is that 10 to 14 year olds are really at different um, points in terms of their own maturation and development. So I mentioned um, that they have very different exposure um, to substance misuse within their peer group, but they also are just at really different places in their own development. Um, and so working with this age group requires some facilitators to have some training in, in adolescent development to really um, be able to effectively work across the diversity um, of experiences that young people have at this age. Another challenge at this age in particular is um, adults' views of young adolescents tend to be either very protective or somewhat dismissive. Um, and so it's a hard, uh, it's kind of a hard needle to thread, but it's um, young adolescents will be, are sensitive to feeling overprotected because that, that feels disrespectful or like adults don't trust them um, and are also sensitive to being dismissed. Again, that feels disrespectful. Um, so it's kind of both trusting young people at this age to make meaningful contributions to prevention work 
um, but also giving them you know the oversight and support they need is really important and can be really challenging um, working with very young adolescents. So moving on to middle adolescents, and here um, I'm talking about 14 to 19 year olds. So picture um, high school students and people transitioning out of high school into jobs or into college and even, yeah, and, and so some in the workforce and some in, in, in college. So what's going on developmentally during this age group is um, identity development continues to be a major concern and adolescents are having a stronger sense of identity as well as stronger passions for specific causes. So of course, that started earlier in development and now um, adolescents tend to kind of know what they care about and care about what they care about. Um, at the same time, developmentally, self-regulation skills are really increasing, and so are social um, social roles are increasing. So, at this age, um, young people tend to have more independence and are afforded more autonomy, um, and tend to have more mobility. So, some are driving or taking public transportation. And at this age, especially, high school tends to start giving young people more opportunities. Um, to enact their independence and autonomy. And so where youth engagement can be especially beneficial at this age is if it allows young people to enact or develop identity. So now that they have a stronger sense of who they are, they can more strongly um, understand what kind of organizations or um, communities they want to engage with and where they want to make a meaningful difference. And so you can really capitalize, talk a, going back to the idea of igniting passions. This is really an, um, a, a time period um, to capitalize on the existing passions and harness those in pro-social ways. So um, in terms of programmatic opportunities, so I want to highlight this middle bullet point. So um, prevention organizations really here can use the ability to leverage the insights that um, middle adolescents have from earlier in their own development. So by this point, um, unfortunately, a, a lot of young people have been exposed to substance use issues in their peer groups or families or communities. And so here, if your prevention organization is wanting to do some prevention initiative that targets younger adolescents, this might be the right age group to really get involved and say, hey, remember back when you were a young adolescent, what kinds of things were you exposed to? What kinds of messages were you hearing? What made you think differently about substance use? Um, so thinking programmatically about how best to capitalize on the fact that this age group has some earlier experience. As well as increased mobility and freedom means that um, your, your young people in this age group are more likely to be able to get to you um, to participate in, in prevention work. And I want to highlight two challenges that are very specific to this age group. And one is that the complexities of power sharing between youth and adult really kind of come online um, in a, because young people in this age group are kind of extra sensitive to power dynamics. The power sharing is always hard um, between community partners when we do community prevention work, and it's always especially hard when it's uh, across age group. Um, but here, middle adolescents, we know from developmental science, tend to be especially sensitive to power sharing. So this is something to closely attend to how much um, young people are having in this age group are having uh, an ability to kind of um, take the driver's seat in a lot of ways and, and, and be in charge of youth-led prevention work. Um, and another thing we know um, from developmental science is that we see really strong decreases in motivation for school at this age. This is especially true, again, for middle adolescents. And um, these decreases in motivation for school activities might extend to um, activities that feel like school. So this is something to think about um, as a prevention organization wanting to work with young people in this age group, um, probably the less it feels like school, the better. 
and I'll get to some specific tips about that, but this really is an age where motivation for school kind of drops off. And finally, I want to talk about older adolescents. And this age group is interesting because you might, I'm calling them older adolescents, but you might also call them young adults. Um, in the developmental literature, we also call them emerging adults. But here you have young people who are starting to look and feel and act more like adults. Um, so developmentally, what's going on is an increase in social rights and responsibilities. Here you might have people um, out of high school and in the workforce, people in college and even leaving college and, and having their first jobs. Um, identity formation is, is not complete, of course, never is, but it's much um, further along um, and cognitive capacity is much higher. So here, how, how young people can really um, benefit from youth engagement opportunities, um, young people tend to have uh, political views that start to be more well-defined and, and, again, might be um, more sure of the causes that they care about and more motivated um, to, to get involved with certain types of issues. Um, in terms of programmatic opportunities, oh, I'm sorry, there we go. Um, in terms of prevention programs, um, it, at this point, when older adolescents and, and young adults, um, they really require less tailoring of community engagement strategies. So here, if you're thinking to the prevention strategies you use that are kind of um, along the lines of community-based processes, here young people start to, to need less support or less, um, less youth and more adult-like in their capacities and in what they need. So you really kind of need fewer resources at this point for, for supervision and young people um, tend to be more effective um, and tend to have more skills and life experience at this age. So in terms of challenges, one challenge of working with these older adolescents or young adults is that they tend to be less inclined to challenge um, the assumptions of, of adult partners. So as they become um, more adult in some ways, they become um, less prone to divergent or creative thinking and less likely, therefore, to challenge existing um, assumptions. So if you have a prevention organization that's been doing something one way, you might be more likely to get younger adolescents to challenge that. Um, in a productive way, um, whereas at this age group, you might get um, you might get less of a willingness to think creatively or differently about um, prevention. Um, one big challenge of this age period is um, social transitions and mobility. Mobility really challenges the ability to have some continuity. So probably everybody um, on this webinar knows that staff turnover is difficult. It's hard to train someone and lose them and train other people. Um, so really, young people in this age group tend to, to be moving a lot. Perhaps they're taking their first job and um, transitioning out of the first job. Um, so it's, it's hard to work with this population for that reason. And it's important to have a, um, an infrastructure so that you can um, integrate young people, especially at this age, into existing kind of youth engagement or prevention initiatives um, and, and um, maintain that structure for, for if they need to transition out. Um, and one other consideration is it's slightly less novel to include um, older adolescents in, in advocacy work at this stage. As I mentioned, um, young people tend to, to be more novel and to, so to grab attention. Um, so when you're working with, with young people in this age group, they can be very effective public speakers or advocates, um, but just are, um, garner a little bit less attention in terms of public speaking or um, advocating for policy change. So just to pause on this, and, and now that I have filled out the table again, if you feel that this is useful to think really developmentally about the youth you're engaging with, uh, I'd be happy to share this resource. So finally, some, some more specific recommendations, and then I'll give a couple resources. 
Um, and these recommendations come from my own experience with youth engagement, from the experience of some of my colleagues, and then also from the developmental literature. Um, so one is to facilitate and listen and don't lecture. So back to the idea of um, young people somewhat bucking against school-like activities, it's very helpful to use engaging activities with young people as opposed to um, lecture formats when you're engaging young people in your own prevention work. Um, also to listen and to, 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 for the adults to see themselves more as facilitators, really get, gathering a group together. And um, if that's done really effectively and, and actively, then young people um, will, will tend to come to life more. Um, another uh, recommendation is to plan unstructured time. So this is kind of very nuts and bolts, but when you're having, when you're doing youth engagement as part of prevention, um, adults tend to be more rigid and maybe have an agenda or be more time-based than young people do. So planning in unstructured time can be really productive, both in terms of just having young people visit with each other and get to know each other, but also um, often that's where um, good ideas flow for young people. Um, another tip is to meet youth where they are, and I mean that both figuratively and literally. Um, so figuratively, again, youth come at um, prevention work. So as your organization engages young people in prevention work, youth come with really different experiences and life skills. Um, so meeting them where they are means you know, trying to spend some time understanding their previous experiences and, and then providing them with the training that they need and filling the gaps that they have um, with their own, um, in, as they start, especially as they start prevention work. And then just um, literally meeting them where they are. Young people often congregate in places that are not necessarily where adults are congregating. And that, of course, school is a good place. If you can actually plan meetings at school, they'll be more likely to get there um, if there are community centers or places where, where they go. Um, but plan is twice as much time as you think you'll need for, for anything. This is a tip I got from some from youth, youth engagement folks in, in California, um, and that is um, just literally if you, if you think you need an hour, plan two hours, and that's both because unstructured time is important but also, and also because of the diversity of experiences young people have, it's really helpful to just plan extra time um, for, for what you think um, you're doing in your um, prevention initiatives. Um, relationships matter. That, that This is always true, and this is very true in community-based work that I think a lot of you do, um, but with young people, it's especially true given their sensitivity to um, rejection and disrespect. So really taking time to build um, relationships with young people that are based on trust and respect and will go a long way um, towards having a productive um, engagement relationship with young people. Um, and finally, um, respectfully challenging ideas. This is one that's really important to me. One thing I've seen before is when organizations um, engage youth for the first time, they often feel like the youth need to kind of be right or that um, that listening to their opinions means kind of deferring to them. And I think it's really important to make sure we can respectfully um, challenge youth opinions. So just, just because they're young and, and they're tuned in to what's going on with their demographic, of course, doesn't mean that they have the best ideas or the right ideas all the time. I think really respectfully um, challenging young people's ideas is helpful towards building a mutual, um, mutually respectful and trusting relationship as well. Um, this table comes from the paper um, that I've already mentioned, um, and this lists what we call key developmentally informed questions to consider when developing YPAR projects. And YPAR stands for Youth Participatory Action Research, um, and that's a very specific type of research method that some psychologists use where they um, really are trying to meaningfully engage youth in research. Um, but I think these questions are, are appropriate and really important to consider for all youth engagement. Um, and so 
your prevention organization might um, ask yourselves, who are the adults youth will be working with? What type of experiences do they have with this particular um, group of youth? Um, and what type of capacity building can we do with adult allies? And the other question I think um, just to highlight is what unique perspective do you want young people to bring to the table? So is it that you want young people who have current experience um, or, or back to this idea of you want middle adolescents um, to work on their prevention initiative because they can reflect back on when they were early adolescents. So it's really helpful thinking very specifically developmentally, I think, can make your prevention initiatives um, that much stronger. Here's a couple recommendations for resources, and there are many, many more, um, but the YPAR Hub is um, by Dr. Emily Ozer, who's a, a um, psychologist at Berkeley, and she and her group have put together this website. Again, YPAR is Youth Participatory Action Research, um, and, but the website is really insightful about youth development and also gives a bunch of resources, and including curricula, like actual modules you can implement when you're starting to, to do um, youth engagement work. So I think some of those resources could be really helpful um, to, to people, to folks here on the webinar, even if you're not doing YPAR per se. The second one is a group called Youth Empowered Solutions. That's a North Carolina-based group. Um, I have not personally worked with them, although I've wanted to sign up for some trainings, but they actually offer trainings and consultations for adult allies. Um, and, and I'm sure there are other organizations who do that too, but I think that's really something to consider if your organization is already doing youth engagement, or especially if you're starting to think about how to engage youth in a certain initiative, um, getting some of the adults in your organization um, trained um, could be a really um, effective thing to do. So just in conclusion, I, I think um, meaningfully engaging youth in their communities can have these positive benefits for both youth themselves by building these protective factors, um, and also for substance misuse prevention efforts. Um, for prevention programs or initiatives or strategies and the organizations here, if you're considering, um, if you're kind of targeting youth in your prevention, um, consider engaging youth really meaningfully in um, the design and implementation of your efforts. And when you do, um, I recommend to really carefully consider um, age or developmental stage of the youth that you're actually engaging with. And again, I know that people on this call have some experience with youth engagement, so hopefully as we move towards Q&A, um, people have some um, insights or questions to share about your own experiences. Um, I'll end here, and as promised, that is my email address if you want to email me for any of these resources, and I know that these um, slides will be shared eventually as well. And with that, I think I'm turning it back over to Mark. Thank you, Parissa, for a, a terrific uh, webinar, uh, really fresh and insightful. Uh, perspective, I think that uh, we don't we don't always hear um, or hear at all in uh, in the prevention field. So, uh, really great content and uh, insight, and uh, your your passion as well as your knowledge for this topic really comes through. Um, so, uh, after I got over uh, my memories of raising uh, uh, adolescent uh, kids, and uh, I wrote down tinderbox and storm and stress. Um, uh, I, I do have some substantive questions. So, um, so one of my big takeaways is that one, one size really doesn't fit all, right? And so you really emphasize the differences by age in youth. Of course, there might be a lot of variation within an age group, and that's something we might talk about in terms of, uh, you know, social economic status and different cultural backgrounds within an age group. But I wanted to ask you uh, about where people can find local resources. 
where can people find resources that will help them with this sort of age-graded approach? Uh, who has that sort of knowledge within communities? So you identified a couple of state and national resources, but who could people turn to when they're working in communities who would have uh, some of this developmental uh, knowledge about youth and the best approaches to, to take to engaging them? In terms of local resources, that's hard to answer because it probably really varies by location. Um, so I think that's kind of why I stuck with more state and national level resources. I think locally, obviously, youth themselves tend to be experts, um, and and so this, you know, but but like what youth do you go to is a great question. I, mean, I think schools are a good place, and often at schools there are there are a couple teachers who just really have the pulse of who are the youth leaders, um, you know, in that community. So I would say schools and teachers. Are a good place to go to, you know. And, and beyond that, I think it just really varies so much by the community. Um, that I that I don't know if I could say um, a certain body that you could go to for this kind of developmental expertise. Okay, great. Well, one other question uh, before we turn it over. Uh, so, you know, you talked about the different the considerations by age, but mm -hmm. what about considerations by a stage uh, of the community work? So, if we take the SPIF model, for example. Um, you know, is it is it beneficial to engage youth at any of the particular uh, stages, whether it be assessment or capacity building, planning, implementation, evaluation, uh, cultural competence? You talked a little bit about that with this idea mm -hmm. of youth being a culture. But do you have any thoughts on you know what the uh, you know what stage is one stage better than another for thinking about engaging youth? Right. I mean, I think. The, my answer is all, all at all points is the right time. You know, there's never a wrong time, and I think generally the earlier the better. So it's kind of the same underlying processes with other community-based work. Is when you when you engage youth from the very beginning, then they are meaningful stakeholders. They can, you know, if you can actually get youth to help give input and shape the direction in the um, assessment and kind of planning and early phases. Um, I think that is that is the best. Um, but if you can't, um, then I, there's no wrong time. It's never too late, I think, to engage youth and say, here's what we've been doing here. What are some strategies? How can we improve and get better? Um, okay. and while I have the floor, let me answer a question that you almost asked but didn't exactly ask, which is about the intersection also of kind of culture, um, socioeconomic status. I had a whole alternate version of this presentation where I had probably 10 slides on the intersection of age as well as kind of culture, ethnic identity. So you know, I, I had to take it out for time's sake, but it's so important to not think about youth as a monolith, as no group is a monolith, but really thinking about, um, you know, how culture matters. And when you think about youth and, and really complicated topics like how youth interact with adults, that really varies by culture. Um, and I, you know, my own background is, um, I have, my father is Iranian, and there's a kind of a different uh, way to show respect and deference to adults, and this really gets complicated. Um, when you work with youth from different cultures to really think about what is the appropriate way to challenge adults and how does culture kind of play into that that dynamic. So thank you for sort of asking that question because that's really important consideration as well. Yeah, well, thank you for reading, reading my mind. And, yeah. uh, uh, and, you know, one thing we can think about is if there's interest, uh, we could think about a follow-up webinar uh, that would delve more deeply into uh, exactly those issues. Mm -hmm. So let me go ahead and hand it over to you, Kristen, for questions from the participants. Okay, we have a question. When it comes to outreach, what are some good creative ways to draw them into having conversations with you? 
And I asked a few clarifying questions in the chat, and um, he said, considering more 18 to 24-year-olds and even mm -hmm. of the demographic, say, Latino or African-American or mm -hmm. men having sex with men, um, mm -hmm. what are some creative ways to draw them into having conversations with you? So that's a great question. So I don't know, given those very specific demographics, because I don't think I've worked specifically with some of those groups, but I can say two things. So one is there's a, the model called the near peer model, which is basically depending on the age of people in the organization um, and the age differential with people you want to approach, getting people closer to that age, um, just hiring them and training them in what your objectives are, and then letting them approach and trying to engage uh, younger people in meaningful conversation um, could be one strategy. Um, and, and that, again, in the literature is called like a near peer model, um, where you kind of train people who are maybe younger than you, but not quite as young as the age group you're, you're trying to work with. Um, so that's one approach. The other approach, and this, this maybe is more general, um, but hopefully helpful, is to just always try to work within the existing infrastructure that is already in a community. Um, so probably a lot of the people on the webinar work with organizations who do this well. Um, but, you know, if you're coming to try to, to reach a, um, a young demographic, you know, think about the schools in the area, the already existing youth organizations, like who has trust, um, who has kind of the social and cultural capital already, and can you partner with them in a meaningful way, and then go to their events. So this is kind of back to going to where the youth are. Um, if, you know, the population you mentioned, if there's a certain sport, when you go to sporting events, like, you know, trying to show up where they already are and starting where they are in terms of their own priorities um, could be really a good approach. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. So we don't have any other questions that have popped up yet. So if anyone does have any questions, please bring them forward. I did want to say that I worked on a youth engagement program in Colorado, and it was around tobacco control uh, mm -hmm. prevention work. And we really worked with the adult allies and encouraged them to engage those non-traditional youths, not the, not the leaders, the, the straight-A students who are involved in all sorts of activities, but to think about those communities that are um, most heavily targeted by the tobacco industry and mm -hmm. really work to, to engage with and partner with those youth. And it was just amazing, the, the successes that the youth coalitions had and we, we had youth come back after years, years after getting out of the program who said, you know, you, you guys were, were my link to my community. I felt mm -hmm. alone. I didn't have any friends. If I didn't have this program, the Get Real program, I don't know where I would be today. And we had many of them go on to college and some of them got into civic work beyond. So I think it's important to really broaden the potential um, young people to engage and not just those um, traditional leaders. Right, and I'm so glad you brought that up, and that's such a great example, Kristen. And I think that, so that in the substance prevention world are called disconnected youth, and how to connect them is a real challenge. I mean, I'm, you know, certainly I'm not saying this is easy, and it sounds like you were really successful at doing that, but I think that is something, like when I give the qualifier meaningful youth engagement, I think that's what I mean is that youth engagement should also be an opportunity for the youth. And that's why, again, back to this idea that youth engagement is multi-level. You know, it's really, I think, I think it's more obvious how it can benefit um, prevention organizations, but it really, if done well, can be such a powerful benefit to the youth themselves. Um, in the ways you were just giving a great example. It can really connect them. That's the perfect example of connecting to kind of pro-social institutions and getting them on a kind of a different track, especially if they're already the traditionally kind of quote-unquote disconnected 
um, young people. So thank you. That's a great example. Bruce, if I may ask a question. Um, what are the what are the big questions for the field now? What don't we know about youth engagement and how to how to uh, go about it? So, so when you say the field, so I'm not sure if you mean like the prevention field or because I you know let me let me first answer this as a researcher. Um, I think as a researcher we need really more rigorous evidence showing what I think the you know the application the the field of actually people who work in prevention probably already know. Um, so I did present the evidence today, but I would say um, the evidence supporting youth engagement is mostly at the level of correlations. So we know that these things are positively related, um, but to actually implement um, interventions, so where we actually, um, you know, have a program where youth engagement is systematically part of that program and show that it both benefits youth and, you know, organizations. I think that is the next, um, the next good step for the field of research and that that'll also build the evidence base for actual prevention providers as well. Great, thank you. We, we do have another question for you. Any recommendations or considerations to take into account if you're trying to create a cross-systems youth prevention summit? Cross-systems, in other words, highlighting intersecting prevention initiatives. Um, okay, so the question is for recommendations of a cross-systems summit. So summit would be like a, an event to bring a bunch of youth together across a bunch of different initiatives. Correct. Um, so one thing that comes to mind is the idea of in-group, out-group is very powerful um, across development, but certainly for adolescents. So if you are bringing youth from many different programs together, I would say to think carefully about how to capitalize on their already existing strong identities, which so likely coming from your certain initiative, you're already very much a member of that in-group. So kind of bringing that pride and in-group membership, but also then making sure to split youth up across these different initiatives for knowledge sharing and really thinking about how to develop a new shared identity around this new summit. So that, that idea of shared identity and in-group is very powerful for young people. And even something like the group together as part of the summit, developing a logo or a saying or something about your new, about the summit is, is a powerful way to build, I think, a sense of identity that's shared across this new thing, um, and that could, could I think, really enhance um, knowledge sharing and participation and buy-in um, for the summit. Great. We have we have two more questions, and we're at time, but it, I want to I want to try and get to these. So if anyone needs to leave, um, you can check out. Make sure you complete the GIPRA or the evaluation. But this question is: What advice, challenges, and opportunities? might you have regarding supporting or partnering with existing youth organizations like YMCA, Boys and Girls Club, et cetera? What are some challenges and opportunities to working with those youth-serving organizations? So the challenge and opportunity are probably the same, and that is that they've been there and they've been doing it for a long time. But I think in developing a new partnership, it's always wise to really understand what's already being done and really respecting what's being done. So come at it with just a true, true open mind and collaborative spirit. So that's always true. Um, and then from there, I think if you can spend, so I think time is, you know, it, it takes time to do that, but if you can truly develop um, a collaborative relationship, then you can start to say, what could we do differently and more together? Um, but I think that respecting what's been done is pretty critical rather than coming at it saying, I have this new idea and, you know, because you because you don't know. I think coming with humility like that is probably my, my biggest piece of advice. Um, and that's not specific to youth organizations. I guess that's more general for any organization or partnership development. 
Right. I, I in my experience with those organizations, that staff turnover was a challenge. That that was. Um, somewhat common with the, mm -hmm. the adults who were engaging the youth in the programs that we were trying to facilitate through those organizations. Mm -hmm. um, I, another, the final question, in your opinion, how long after do you evaluate your community outreach strategy before you adjust your strategy? So that's a really good question. And it, so that probably also depends on a lot of factors, like what your community outreach strategy is and like, I guess, Hopefully you have a strong theory of how long that outreach strategy should kind of take to attain the results you want. So without knowing any of that, um, I would say um, evaluate often. And um, I think things take more than a year, probably two years to really take. So if you've got the time, I would keep assessing. I would gather multiple kind of assessment points um, but and make small adjustments, but not big ones. So don't throw out the strategy yet, but, but make small adjustments. If you feel like you're learning a clear message about what's not working from your kind of assessments, then iter iteratively make small changes, but don't make a big change or throw out an average strategy, I would say for at least a year, because things take time. Absolutely, great, great uh, response. Wonderful presentation today, Brissa. Thank you so much for your time. Everyone have a great day. Thank you so much, bye-bye.